Welcome to the Big Beatles Sort Out, a show in which I, author and musician Gary Abbott, attempt to finally decide my favourite Beatles recordings by scoring each and every one for lyrical content, musicality and production. I will be assisted in this venture by my brother and resident Beatles expert, Paul Abbott, with a deep knowledge of the Beatles and the wider context in which they operated. Each episode we will explore and score five songs from the Beatles' full recording catalogue. The songs will be drawn at random to try and avoid any favourite album or era prejudices, skewing the results as we go along. Thanks for joining us as we try and sort out The Beatles. Welcome to episode 16, and uh, we hope you've had a lovely Christmas at the time you're listening to this, Um, and look forward to a new year, and welcome to our Beatles expert, Long Paul Sally Abbott. That's a very good one, thank you. (laughs) Um, I hope you've had a nice Christmas, Paul, but... We all have to guess because we're recording this the week yeah. before and it's going out the week after, so let's just all hope we have. Uh, we will all have had a lovely Christmas, I guarantee it. Absolutely no reason at all this year, particularly for us not to have had a nice Christmas. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, we're not going to do any questions today, Paul, because one, we haven't got any. Um, I think it's getting <laughs> well, That's a good reason. <laughs> yeah, it's getting harder for people to think of general Beatles things. and um, We've got a lot to talk about with our songs anyway, and... We will always, as always, have our This Beatle Day, if you've got one, Paul. I have got an On This Beatles Day for the 28th of December. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I will say, because we've been in December whilst these last few episodes have been happening, mm. there's only so much you can say in, when you sort of trawl back through the Beatles' history because they're either doing sort of residencies for a little bit of it, but then in later years, it's December and they're actually starting to take time off or not be doing anything obvious or recorded in history books as it were so i have got something though which is that on the 28th of december 1962 it's three days from the end of their last residency in hamburg mm-hmm. so it's the third time back at the star club in hamburg they've been they've been in hamburg i think five times in total but this is the third time at the star club and it's really little more than a contractual obligation at this point they didn't want to do it Right. As they hadn't wanted to do the one before. Because at this point, Love Me Do's come out. Blimey. Oh, I didn't realise they were still doing it that late. Yeah. So, I mean, Hamburg used to have a little more sway and pull over them, even though every time they came back from it, they were like, I'm never doing that again. Mm. It's ludicrous. What have I done to my body and brain? But they kept going back. But by this time, they were just so fed up with it. They And it was a contractual obligation, like I say. It's just, they went back, they did a, you know, this short... 18th to the 31st of December it was and like we're at the 28th so they'll be looking forward to getting home they were sick of it by this point but yeah contractual obligation love me do's in the chart and getting noticed right they were worried about it sort of it started to get a little bit of traction Mm. just before they left and they were really worried that they weren't around to do any publicity and stuff like that that's the thing isn't it yeah they're in their own country for you know yeah I mean they were still struggling to actually find people to accept love me do as a as a going concern as a prospect because it was new it was unusual yeah and luckily they come back and it's like it's oh it's still going up the charts right so it's just a strange time for them but as i like i say with three days from the end of their last residency they must have just been thinking three more days yeah. and go back home and be you know the r&b co- you know the r&b group that we're becoming that people mm. know that we are and yeah, it's about this time that there is a set of recordings made at the Star Club, which okay. are the 
yeah, the uh, sort of legal issues surrounding that. Someone tried to put them out in the 70s and I think Apple have clawed them back since and all that sort of stuff. That's a whole other story. Right. But yeah, there is there is recordings from this period, perhaps not made on this exact day, but certainly near there anyway, which at least is a nice little snapshot of the end of one era of the Beatles. Yeah, overlapping the start with the of start one. of the next one, yeah. Yeah. Very much so, much more than I, I realised. So they yeah. were still, they were still, yeah. Were they still playing their ridiculously long kind of sets kind of thing at that point? No, no. not by this point. No, no okay. No. So they were at least... It, it gets, every time they go back, it sort of, it gets a little bit better. The money gets a bit better. They have to do a little bit less in terms... But, so the difference between this and the first sort of time in Hamburg is massive in terms yeah. of how much they play and what their accommodation's like and how much they're getting paid and stuff. Okay, okay. Oh, very interesting. Well then, we shall get straight on with something... Not um, as early as that, but not far off. With um, "Can't Buy Me Love." Can't buy me love, Paul. Well, everybody tells me so. I mean, I'm very pleased that we're starting with this because. Of all of the Beatles singles, this is one that it really does feel like just an explosion of excitement, doesn't it? It's just mm. incredible. Facts and figures, then. It's recorded on the January the 29th and February the 25th of 1964, but its main recording session is done in the EMI Pathé Marconi Studios in Paris right. on the day that they go in to record the German language versions of the other songs. Oh, I see. Oh, okay. So there'll be a little theme cropping up across a couple of of the songs we're doing today where they're basically going oh we're in a studio well why not why not make a new song yeah whilst we're here yeah rather than waste the time or stuff like that and so yeah so the majority of this is originally recorded in paris okay so that's the furthest away any well i was going to say that was the furthest away but then i suddenly remembered that um the inner lights recorded in bombay and that's a little bit further away mm. bombay as it was back then mumbai now but yeah, this is a single. It's backed with You Can't Do That. It gets to number one for three weeks, has sort of 14 weeks on the chart, drops out, comes back in for another week. And it's obviously on the Hard Day's Night album as well. And it's a smasher. Mm. It sure is. Um, I mean, despite it being among the early Teeny Boppers singles, if you, know, if you want to put a, a broad category um, over those kind of early singles and the, the audience thereafter, it's a fast old song, this one, isn't it? It's a great. It's, it's it never stops. It never lets up. With Paul's signature bass kind of bopping between the first and the fifth, you know, like he does, keeping it bouncing along. It's really pushed by that, isn't it? So we've also got double Paul on the microphones. Right. Yep, it's doubled up McCartney vocals. <laughs> yeah, um, and he's not caring about getting it close or spot on, which I like. He's almost duetting with himself, like when him and John do sing. You know, occasionally sing the song at the same time. He's singing yeah. the song with himself and he's not trying to double his voice to make it sound thicker. He's saying, there's two of me singing here. Um, yeah, it's an interesting one how they do that double tracking. Before they start using, if they're not using the artificial double tracking system, mm. which is more like a studio effect, this is literally them trying to record alongside themselves. Yeah. And it's they leave the imperfections in and that's what makes it for makes for such an interesting sound. Yeah, it's a really hard one if you ever try to double track vocals, you know. Yeah. Where if you try and make... Especially, well, if you're doing it without the benefit of 
all the modern technology where you can literally drag a note into position yeah. on the screen as well. I mean, even, even doing that, it's a, it's, it's, oh, it's, a, a it's, a, it's a nuisance. Yeah, but if you know, they're not. He's not going for it with this, but it works because it just sounds like there's two of him having a a, a, a good old time singing it. Um, the guitars aren't doing that much. We have an acoustic or a clean guitar just strumming away. Yeah, uh, the occasional electric John. Yeah, is it is it a, is it just a clean sounding guitar? Or was he asking? Yeah, John's on his on his acoustic. Okay, yeah, and the occasion. And then you've got George's doubled electric guitar. Yeah, and um, yeah, for the uh, some added chords and the solo, which again is doubled, I think. Yeah. Yeah, um, and then we've got a cymbal heavy Ringo pushing it along. It's re- relentless. Well, the, oh, go on. The cymbals are, are something worthy of note in this anyway. So uh, I've got it, stuff to say about cymbals. We'll put that in the production bit then. Um, it's it's relentless and it's catchy. It's all melody driven, really. Um, that's the thing. It's it's all in that in the in the in the melody. So um, I'm going to give it sixty three point five for music. Um, so yeah, uh, on to production. Um, so it's strange on the production. I listened to a couple of versions of this to gauge the production. The first one I listened to was the Beatles one reissue, you know, from the one album. Okay, yeah, yeah. And the two thousand and nine remix. Um, remaster, not re- remix. remaster. Sorry, I can't figure out if I like the way it is recorded and mixed because it seems to surge in volume and compression between the cymbals and the vocals coming in and out. Well, this is something that's worth talking about. Ah, is this the symbols you were mentioning earlier? Yeah, so there's there's all sorts of st- stories around the symbols on this, and that includes the hi hats, obviously. Mm. So Helen Shapiro apparently went to one of the t- recording sessions, presumably the February the twenty fifth one in nineteen sixty four, and she said that Ringo was overdubbing some symbols onto it. Okay. Now you'd only do that if you thought, well, the reasons for doing it. One creative idea, I want more of this sound. Yeah. Or two, I want to fix something. Right, yeah. So now to me, they do sound like, the symbols do sound like they phase, they dip and phase and dip and phase. They surge, yeah, yeah. Yeah. And then if you listen to the mono version, they sound almost like a lead instrument. They're that much brighter. Now, the other thing here is Norman Smith, who was with... Uh, Jeff Emmerich so these are the engineers and tape operators working with George Martin when when they come to produce the mono master they discover that the high end on Ringo's drums has vanished or keeps dropping out right possibly because how how this tape was stored or spooled or something okay and so the story is that Norman Smith went down into the studio got a hi-hat and as they dubbed the you know the mono mix he over, he played extra hi-hat over the top of it right okay so on the official credits for the mono version of this at least norman smith is hi-hat you know it's what it should say because he's added this overdub right okay so, so, so it sounds fix. massively different it sounds massively different on the um the mono mix compared to the stereo mix which mm. doesn't have the, the overdub symbols and you can hear that weird wash of like the dip and the so I don't know what's going on. Yeah. Something's going on with the symbols. Definitely, there. yeah, it's definitely been fixed in production, but that's whatever. But that, you know, obviously, you can hear it. Um, it, it. Unfortunately, it does have the effect of it keeping it a bit muddy and uneven in places. And I, yeah. and I actually put in my notes. I wonder if it's because there isn't much in the top end going on until the solo comes in. But if it was the whole top end of the drums that was let, yeah. that lost, I wonder if it's because it uh, it was originally done in the Paris studios yeah. and something's happened in the 
you know, running it off from the studios there, storing it, sending it, yeah. taking it, getting it back onto the machines in, in England. Someone's I don't just know. not, someone's left a fader down or... A, or a, something's, a something's caught in the mechanism and yeah. has caused a physical problem on the tape or something, I don't know. Because it, it's, it's also a problem because the main rhythm guitar isn't especially bright, so it all feels a bit middly, you know. Um, yeah. Yeah. Um, and you can hear the earlier guitar solo takes in the background, which I like to, yeah. to hear, which that's that stuff, you know, we do like, but it's... I mean, if you're being pernickety, it's it's because they can't wash it off anymore. Yeah, because they tried. That's that's from the uh, the Paris sessions. Yeah, and George has replaced it at a later date, but they've not been able to get rid of the the spill onto yeah. the other tracks and stuff. So, um, and I also like how on um, one of Paul's two vocals, uh, the, the the last note just kind of sighs off with "Can't buy me love." Uh. <laughs> it's <laughs> yeah. one of the last two, I think it does. One of the, one of yeah, the two yeah. vocals just goes oh, and the other one goes oh. Uh. <laughs> I, I'm sure it's on purpose. It's a funny kind of thing. If you listen to it carefully, it's one of the last two what that happened in yeah, the song. Yeah. yeah, so it's a mixed bag production wise. I wish it was brighter when I'm thinking about it. I mean, you know, we listen with very close ears to this and against their entire catalogue from beginning to end. So it's going to give forty seven point five for production. Oh. It's a strange, you know, it's a strange thing to score it like that, given it how actually, as a whole, it is a remarkably exciting piece of music. I know it's it's almost as if this entire system doesn't work, isn't it? No, yeah. Well, perhaps that's also down to another production thing that's worth noting, and this is sort of the other side of production. This is George Martin as a A and R man, arranger, producer mm. type character. Is him saying, "Stick the chorus at the beginning again." Well, yes, yeah, so that's yes. Yeah, so, so that yeah. so it starts really excitingly with that hook. Yeah. And I guess the um, it, that those those decisions always fall precariously between music and production. And yeah. you're you're right. You know, from an array, if I was to get, go even further, which I would have been happy to do, but um, I've, I I parted the amount of categories I was going to score things on <laughs> because no one else would want to listen to the amount of detail I would go into. But the um, yeah arrangement definitely. Those are all I, those yeah. early songs. I always feel are, are very much Martin kind of crafted. Yeah, saying try this, put yeah. that there, half the length of that, double length, you know, that sort of thing. And I think, I don't know whether it's him that suggested getting rid of the backing vocals that are on that alternative take you can hear, mm. where they're doing the sort of the echo backing vocals, which just don't work, just mm. just weigh the song down, really. So whether it was him that said, get rid of them, just make it one vocal, one powerful vocal all the way through. Yeah, but that's, that's how it is. So on to lyrics. Um, it's another McCartney baffler. Um, and this is, in my opinion, the, the, apart from being almost childlike in the use of the buying of diamond rings, you yeah, know, yeah. as being the universal symbol for love, apparently, um, it contradicts itself right from the off. He starts off saying how he will buy you a diamond ring and how he'll get you anything because he doesn't care too much for money because money can't buy you love, which is okay because it doesn't. he'll get you a diamond ring, I suppose, because it doesn't care. But then in the second verse... It's about not having much to give, money-wise. So, you know, not diamond rings, really. Yeah. And in the third, it's about not asking for diamond rings at all. It, it goes full circle. Um, like a ring. But, uh, oh, my goodness. Dun, dun, dun. <laughs> all right, then I'll have to knock the score up. No, it's, um, I think it's just... I mean, the diamond ring thing, it just always makes me think of nursery rhymes, but in a very... Is this McCartney's ring cycle? Yeah. So um, That's a clever joke. Go on, you'll have to explain. No, it. it's not. It's not no, because it involves explaining all about opera, Gary, and I can't. We haven't got time for that. Now. Okay. 
Um, yes, I don't think it's a deliberate progression of thought, just an unstructured ramble no, around the idea of all. buying things and love. But the, uh, the central message is 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 great. You can't buy me love. You know, yeah. Someone apparently suggested, s- said, or wrote somewhere that they thought it was about a prostitute, him singing it yes, to a prostitute, yeah. and he just went, "No, no, it's not. It doesn't have to be. It is like you say. It is just. It's it's pop song words. Yeah, it is. And it's the the, the core hook is loud and clear and oft repeated enough to make up for some of it. Forty three point five for Lucas. I'm giving it, which is fifty one point five overall. Mm. Next. I call your name. Oh, I can't sleep at night Since you've been gone I never weep at night I can't go on Don't you know I can't take it I don't know who can Paul? Yes? I call your name. Oh, I thought I heard something. Oh, that was brilliant. That was almost like rehearsed. <laughs> Another early song. Yeah. It's the uh, 1st of March, 1964, that this is recorded, and it comes out on the Long Tall Sally EP, which is 19th of June, 1964, mm. and is available now on the Past Masters collection. Mm-hmm. You've got... Uh, it's, well, it's really simple. It's it's very simple. You've got a double a double track Lennon vocal. He's on guitar. McCartney's on his bass. George is on his 12-string. Yeah. Ringo's on the drums. And the cowbell. Oh, yes. Yeah, don't and forget the cowbell. No, it's very hard to on this one. And that's it. Really, really, really early Lennon composition. Yes. Um, it's got a really slow, almost laid back groove to it compared to the pace of Can't Buy Me Love, hasn't it? Um, I know we, we are only, only comparing those two because that's the one we've just been talking about. But um, compared to something like that, it's it's actually quite... It's got it's got a groove. It's got a... Yeah. You know, to it. Um, I like it to vibe... Um, especially when it kicks up a notch for the guitar solo um, section, you know, where it goes into a slightly f- kind of faster feel. Scar. goes yeah. into like a scar section. Yeah. Um, before settling back into its disjointed beat with that cool lead riff and what you've just confirmed for me is a 12-string. Uh, yeah. Moving around constantly, having fun with scales. Um, all the chords have a slight twist in this. Like they're all sevenths. There's something, yep. it is like you say, it's got that scar. I, I, I hate to say it, but like, I don't hate to say it, but you know, like something that you'd expect to hear from Madness or something. Every every chord well, it is. sounds it's, jaunty. It's, scar only really emerges notably in the in the late 50s anyway. Mm. This is pre-reggae you know, boom, which happens through the 60s. So this is Lennon adopting something very early on and, and adding it in. You know, yeah. and he goes on to be quite a big fan of of reggae and ska and all sorts as he goes through his life. Mm. And actually, to have this here, it's such a different thing. You've got to remember with this one as well is this is a Lennon song, right? That he wrote pre Beatles, okay, and finished off, and then gave it to Billy J. Kramer and the Dakotas, right? And so it, it becomes a flip side for Billy J. Kramer. Uh, it's on the flip side of Bad to Me, which of course is another Lennon and McCartney song that right. the Beatles didn't do, and. and um, the Billy J. Kramer arrangement is all right, but it doesn't have that interesting rhythm stuff that's going on in this yeah. version. It's, it is the Beatles version is much better. They, they had they had a, they had a funny little habit of giving people songs and then later on recording them better, didn't they? Well, <laughs> like yeah. selling a song and then but you know and then sticking it on an album and being oh but this is actually the better one. Um, but yeah, it's um, it's great. It's got a lovely jaunty feel. 
the lead vocal is all part of that kind of mix that gives it that feeling. And I think it's a nice little number. I'm going to give it 59 for music. Mm -hmm. On to production. You've already mentioned it, but my first note is uh, Ringo. Don't forget the cowbell. Yeah. Sorry, lads. He shouts as it comes in after a few bars. I like how there is no cowbell for just for a bit a bar or so. Well, it's like, I think oh, the again, cowbell. Dong, dong, dong. Yeah, yeah. Well, I think the thing there is, I think on the mono version, which I don't have, mm. I, I don't think I have. No, I don't. I think it, the cowbell's in from the start on that. Is it? And okay. So yeah. Then. Again, the if you actually one of the nice things is when people mention stuff on Twitter to us and talk about things, and mm. uh, my friend Pete, as old rope on Twitter, yeah, I think he mentioned about he listened to mono things a lot more than the stereo ones for quite a few Beatles things. So sometimes we're talking about something and he's going, what, but that, yeah. what? Yeah. So it is interesting how people's experiences differ. And and, and yes, I mean, I, I'm aware, of, become more aware doing this, that there is that big difference. But um, yeah, for for sanity's sakes, we can't cover it all. But yeah, no, it's no. um, it's, it's an interesting point of difference and it, yeah. it, it, it will make me hunt it out. I might even have it amongst my random vinyls that I'm working through. I've noticed that with the Beatles is coming up next, I think, which is the mono, but I'll check. Um, so, yeah, uh, the cowbell is quite notable, but I don't mind it. It's just um, funny how it's, in the version I've listened to, it's not there for a tiny amount, and then it's there very much there for the rest of it. Um, yeah. Also, the opening riff intro has an unusual chord or fluff or something in it. Um, but it seems to work, I think, because there's so many. It just sort of almost slides onto the chord type thing. Yeah, which sounds a bit like, whoops, but um, yeah. intentional, intentional or, or whatever. It, it, yeah, I think I like it. Um, I think this 12 string really stands out here as a point of difference and sounds great. And I know it's, it's brought it out every now and again, but um, 12 strings have a very distinctive sound and it's, this song was, was made for it, I think. Um, yeah, it works very well, I think. Yeah. I, uh, to be honest, the production thing that I've got noted down here is I like the sound of the guitars on this record. Mm. It's almost like they've been recorded slightly differently to their usual way of doing things. Yeah. like the, Particularly the rhythm guitar, which feels like it's more roomy. It's more like the mic might be further away to get more of a room sound yeah. to it. It's got a difference. It, it sits in the space differently, which I think makes it at least an interesting curio. Okay. Yes, I, I, I think that's... Uh... That's a good point. Yeah, it, it's I, I like the sound of it. It's um, it has space to breathe. I think to hear all the bits in the in their own places. I think everything's got a nice little zone. It's working in. I'm going to give the production fifty two point five. Lyrics, uh, not much to get stuck into here. Um, it's kind of like a really light version of "I'm So Tired" for the cheery generation. He can't mm. he can't sleep, and he calls out her name in love anguish. Yeah, I suppose it is, actually. I hadn't really made that sort of connection. Yeah. But because of this one, because it's an early number, again, you could just dismiss it as sort of that yeah. songs about relationships soup that so many of them seem to be mixed into. Yeah, I, I don't... But I, actually, I, yeah. I don't think it liked um, I'm So Tired that there's there's much behind it, but it's, it's fundamentally got the same message. Well, uh, <laughs> the story about this being such an early Lennon song is then sort of followed up by McCartney saying, well, we finished this at John's house, you know, at Mendips, mm. his Aunt Mimi's. And Paul McCartney suggesting, actually, well, it felt like it wasn't about anything, but then I started thinking about it. Is it about the people that he's lost or have abandoned him, even as at that age, yeah. you know, when he's young? So possibly it's got a little bit more there, but, you know, that might be yeah, McCartney not, retrofitting it. Yeah. So. Um, 
Yeah, because actually he never makes it obviously about like a, a, a woman. You know, it's, it does he? There's, there's no lot I can't. I'm trying to run the lines no. in my head. It is about since you've been gone. Oh, don't you know I can't make it? I'm not that kind of man. It doesn't. Yeah, he doesn't actually. Yeah, it could be more deep. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, it probably isn't. But we never know. Um, it's got another strange contradictory detail again that he never weeps at night. Um, it's like, but I don't weep at night. Um, anyway, yeah, I'm going to give it 42 for lyrics, which is um, 51.2 overall. Okay. Next, a table dog. Hey, Bulldog Paul. <laughs> hey, Bulldog Gary. <laughs> ah, well, we're moving forward a little bit in time from those first couple anyway. We've gone to 1968, specifically February the 11th, 1968, mm. for a song that turns up on the Yellow Submarine soundtrack album, 17th of January, 1969, that comes out. Mm-hmm. And it's in the film, certain edits anyway. Oh, yeah. And this is, this is, for a song of the period... A one session recording, one and done, sort of in and out. Yeah. And this is the one that ties into that theme I was mentioning before of them using the time in Paris to record Can't Buy Me Love. Yeah. This is one where they've gone into the studio to be filmed ostensibly for the Lady Madonna video. Right. But rather than just go in there and mime Lady Madonna, they go, Do you know what? We'll just make another song. And, so, and was so it, was they, it, did they make it there and then? Yeah. Or, or from, from scratch? I think Lennon had part of it. So he had, yeah, he had a, he had a, he had lyric not, ideas, let's knock this I think. about a bit, lads, kind of thing. But then comes in and, and everything then is then worked up in the studio in this session while they're being filmed for the footage that then gets stuck on the Lady Madonna video. Right. Of course. So yeah. it's, yeah. So it's, it's got a spontaneous feel because it was more or less spontaneous. Brilliant. Brilliant. That's, um, that's a great bit of context. I, I, I don't think I knew that. I know about the video because it's a great bit of footage. I didn't realise that's them having just really kind of completed it in its format. Yeah. You know, it's in. And the good thing is, of course, they've then gone and made a Hey Bulldog video using this footage. They've re-synced it to the actual yeah, song that's yeah. being recorded, which is interesting because that's really the only detailed footage of Beatles in studio doing that sort of thing. Yeah. And it's great. It's great to see. Um, I mean... The layered intro tells us a lot of what we need to know in the first three repeats of the of the riff, um, and we, we we get everything joining in, don't we? With with that with that riff, um, and then with John coming in with his gritty vocals, all the while Ringo shuffling along, playing off the swing to launch into his signature fills. Um, and kind of bass is working with the piano, keeping the verses and bridges running along under the vocals. And we just get one of the rockiest rock riffs that's ever been rocked in riffery. <laughs> you know, plus Lennon's dramatic links with the You Can Talk To Me sections and the heavy snare that comes in. There's a doubled up snare or something that comes in there. There is, my favourite thing, that. And um, who's, who's doing the solo in this one? Is it a Mako solo? No, well, now, this is something that's still being debated as, oh, as well, I, I, I think, was... here, as to whether it's George 
or John playing the guitar. Right. Because, I mean, the way John plays solos, it does have some of those qualities about it, but there are other sources that say it was George and he nailed it sort of first time, whereas normally he'd be quite methodical about working out his guitar parts. But I think it's, I think it's George, yeah. but, you know... But it's yeah. who am I to say, really? It's brilliant. Um, I always thought that um, the um, "You Can Talk to Me" bit is the nearest that Lennon got to. Um, if he'd have gone on to do a Bond song, I know it's got the literal kind of feeling of that kind of Bond movement, the up the kind of. But it, oh yeah, it's got this sort of augmented. It's got that drama movement up from the chord. It's great. Um, I'm giving it 83 for music. It's hey bulldog. So um, production. Um, it's another one that I sometimes think is heavier than it is when I actually listen to it. So in my mind, it feels like, and I always it feels like the heaviest song ever. But when I listen to it, I think oh, it's a bit thinner on the ground when you actually listen to it. But then it's such a meaty rock riff that part of me wants to hear it being absolutely thrashed to the ground just because of I have some sensibilities towards that side of things with some big dramatic backing, but I understand that's more the legacy of the song because that riff is just so big. I could hear it on the loudest guitar being played <laughs> with the yeah. most over it, you know. I could hear Guns N' Roses play it and I'd think that that's fine for me, <laughs> which is, I know it's not got any subtlety, but it's not a, it's, it's not really a criticism, but um, yeah, like a few songs around this time, there's a lot of exposed bass doing a lot of work and the bass is round and lovely and bouncy. I just want more parts in um, more parts in places to thicken it up, I think. But that said, when the snare comes in on the bridges and the guitar joins for the main riff and it all gets going, it's great. Very much like um, Baby or a Rich Man and other things from around this period where sometimes it takes till everything's really in there before you really get going. But um, that, that big snare, that's a great choice production-wise, yeah. isn't it? Well, I, it's an interesting thing, that snare, because... It doesn't come across as well on depending on which version you hear. Now, I first got to know this song on the rock and roll music cassettes. Right. And it's on volume two of rock and roll music. And I'm convinced in my head that listening to the mix that's on there, and whether it's just because of the nature of the, the cassette or or whether it's something different than how the masters were prepared for that collection, I don't know. Mm. But I'm convinced that's what I call the space snare because it's got tons of reverb on it. Yes, It really stands huge. out in my mind on that version I listened to growing up on my Walkman. Whereas actually in the new mix, it's it sits back in it a little bit and it's not quite as big. Mm. Uh, but it's still an exciting thing. To have that much stupid long reverb on it so mm. yeah Ringo's drums don't get much better than this either do they recording and performance wise it's a it's, an, yeah, it's, it's a great. really good Ringo track I should have mentioned that in music really uh, yeah I just think it could have taken a bit of added instrumentation though but given that it's a done on the day type of thing and you know it's 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 small fry compared to what this song means to so many people it's I'm gonna give it 77 for production lyrics then um, so this is one I think Lennon famously dismissed in later life. Um, yeah, which is usually down to the lyrics, isn't it? Yeah, it is. Yeah, and per, as per usual, I disagree with him. Um, <laughs> which you know, whatever this is about, even if that is nothing, it's about nothing with style, isn't it? It's, it is, and it's it's Lennon who grew up writing nonsense poetry and nonsense stories mm. and things like that and reveling in in lewis carroll and all that madness 
and the world of the goons and their use of language and stuff. To be dismissive of it, you know, later years, when you can't do anything about it afterwards, yeah. after the fact, you know, it is what it is. And yet this actually, I think, in some ways has quite a lot to say. I can't put my finger on quite what it is. No, and that's the interesting thing with it. it it's got some kind of dark undertones. It's hinting at some noir story of murder in the park and bloodhounds on the trail of something or or something. It's it's like the portrait of a serial killer or a loner madman lost in the dark in Central Park, imagining crimes he might never commit, maybe. Mm. You know, it's 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 some kind of portrait of something, isn't it? Like I say, it can't put your finger on it, but it's it's some insight into some some world or other. Um or if you're my three year old daughter, it's the doggy song that she likes and makes me put on repeat in the car. Yeah. Um, whatever it is, they're, they're, they're interesting lyrics and they feel that they're loaded somehow or other with some kind of meaning. Yeah, originally it was a, it was Hey Bullfrog. Right. And they worked up to Hey Bulldog. And they reckon they, you know, Beatles researchers, mm. there's some thought that that's because a few days before this was recorded, uh, Paul McCartney goes and he does drumming for a Paul Jones track. So Paul Jones, who used to be in Man- one of the sing- singers of Manfred Mann, okay. is doing this single and McCartney ends up playing on the track that's on the B-side, mm. which is called The Dog Presides, right. which has got loads of dog sound effects in it. Which, of course, we have here. Yeah, so we're thinking that, that perhaps he brought that influence into this and they took it from bullfrog to bulldog and then it gets you all that sort of ad-lib fun stuff that you get. Yeah. But I should mention, this single that, that Paul Jones puts out, which is the A-side is called And the Sun Will Shine, but the, the B-side, The Dog Presides, the the players on this, Paul McCartney drums, Nicky Hopkins keyboards, he's obviously plays with the Beatles, produced, you know, involved in Abbey Road and production. Peter Asher produces it, he's obviously part of the Beatles set as well. Paul Jones, harmonica lead vocal. Jeff Beck guitar. Right. You know, Paul Samwell Smith on bass. So it's like a little mini super group mm. that Mac, Mac has just gone off and done some drums for. Wow. I'll have to dig that one out and put it up on the uh, Twitter. Mm. Yeah. Great. So, did I say 75 overall? Because if I did, that's what I meant to say. 65 for <laughs> lyrics and 75 overall. Um, so, next we have Hello Goodbye. When I say go, go. Hello. Goodbye. Paul. Carrie. Uh, Back to 67. We're in October the 2nd, the 19th, the 20th, the 25th, and the 1st of November 1967 for the single Hello, Goodbye. Mm. The B-side being I Am The Warrus. Spends 12 weeks in the chart, seven of those at number one, and also obviously turns up on the Magical Mystery Tour EP album thing mm-hmm. as well. Yeah, no intro, just exploding into the verse, um, which is a great way to start a song. Shiny Paul vocal, taking us into a song that I've never really heard anything similar to, which makes it very hard to talk about. Yes. <laughs> it's, it's, I mean, what style would you say this is? 
What would you? Well, that's the thing. I don't know really. It's a Beatles song. That's it that's is. it. That's the only thing you could say. It's a Beatles song. It's a Beatles single. I don't know what they thought about it. I think Lennon didn't think much of it, mainly because he wanted "I Am the Walrus" to be the A side, and then yeah. McCartney comes in with this, and it's like, oh well, that's obviously going to be the A side. It's more accessible, I guess, in, in some ways. But yeah. what a choice to have to make. I am the Warus or Hello Goodbye, because, you know, whatever style it is, it's it's brilliant. I mean, it's got a kind of a, I want to say something like a swing samba type thing to it, but I'm only saying that because there's kind of dancers at the end, and that's hula, not samba. I don't know what's going on. Yeah, but, and that's a whole other section, really. They just improv that in the studio. Yeah, but there's so much counterpoint going on with the violins. It is violins, isn't it? The Violas. Violas, indeed. The, two, vi- two violas played by Ken Essex and Leo Birnbaum. Oh, good. Um... But the, that, yeah, so the counterpoint with the violas, the guitar part, the backing vocals, vocals, the bass. At times, the parts are intertwining all over the shop. Yes, they are. Like Lennon's doing an organ part that's part of that as well. Yeah, so. and, and it's making the, this great hole that settles into the choruses and then just comes back with that mad, like I said, hula, hula outro groove. But it's also haunting because of it. You know, like, there's something about this song that's always made me feel all sorts of nostalgic sadness happiness feelings it's it it's like it's you know recorded at that magic frequency range which is meant to resonate you know it's almost like binaural in some ways it something about it combines and well again it goes that agrees with my theory about the stuff around magical mystery tour being dark psychedelia weird psychedelia not sunshine psychedelia that's weird wistful dark yeah but you find it uncomfortable don't you I, I do in a in a good way. Yeah, it makes you feel something. Just the 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 general resonance resonances of it all seem to do something, don't they? To you, bloody hippie. <laughs> um, I think it's if I was a proper hippie, I'd know what I was on about when I was saying about the the magic frequency range. There's going to be a certain frequency range which like resonates with energy or something like that. <laughs> I think it's all the running up and down of the scales in the parts and the vocals that probably do it. It probably sends your, your synapses off all over the shop. It's very orchestrated for a pop song. You know, if you, and I'm sure someone has, if you were to score it for orchestra instruments, it'd be all sorts of lovely counterpoint stuff going on. And also, Ringo, what a man, what a legend. I know, his drumming's amazing again on this. It's, just we phenomenal. Having, yeah, great Ringo week as far as picks go. Um, 90 for music I'm giving it because it's undoubtedly a great song. Can I just do the personnel quickly? So just yeah. to prove how much stuff's going on in there. You've got McCartney on bass, vocals and piano. Mm-hmm. Uh, you've got John on vocals, organ, electric guitar. He plays the piano in the end section, I believe. Okay. George is on vocals, tambourine, electric guitar. Ringo's on drums and congas and all or some of them are on maracas and bongos as well. Mm. Then stick two violas on top of that. So they're you know, they're just chucking all sorts in there. So production, I mean, what what a production. It's such a well put together piece of music. From what you've just told us of the personnel there, it has to be, doesn't it? Otherwise it'd just be one big soup. Um, it's, yeah, you have to manage those sorts of sessions and 
obviously Abbey Road and EMI, they have a system for managing these things. Everything is written down. It was quite fuddy-duddy in a lot of ways. Mm. And by the time you get to this point, I presume that system's paying dividends because everything's labelled, tape boxes, records of the logs, all sorts of things. Mm. So you know to keep track of these things if you're coming in on three or four days yeah. and thinking, I'm going to add another thing to this. You need to know how many times things have been mixed, what are you going to bounce together that you can't yeah. separate later, are you going to keep, are you going to change? It's... Yeah, it's there's nothing I've got written down in here about production because it's just a great job of yeah, this it, song. Yeah. There's nothing ludicrous and stand out and weird and mad studio trickery or anything at all. It's just a very good production. Yeah, it's it just kind of gets multiplier points wise just because it's there's just so much there and you hear it all. It's all there. It's not lost, it's not it's not bunching up in the frequency ranges, it's just brilliant. Um it's just so well placed. Like you say, we have all those things going on. Um, I won't run through them all again because you've just told us what they all are, um, mm-hmm. which is pretty much what my notes were, just all the things that were going on that I could hear. Um, and we, we've talked about all those instruments. The the backing vocals as well float in a range of their own. Paul's, yeah, I like them. Paul's little why, why, why bit is ace with the reverb mm-hmm. and the echo on it. Like say an organ joins in towards the end, the piano starts bashing the chords in the final chorus before the outro sounds thick and full. And then there's this whole fiesta that comes in apparently at the end. You know, it is, yeah. It, it, and I don't think the only bit of the which, song that the only bit of the song that John liked. Yeah, but it's a, it's it's great. It just sounds full. You're right. There's not much to say other than there's just a load of stuff in it, and it all sounds great. But for that reason, I'm giving it 92 for production. Heavens, it's it's. It's, it's just the sheer volume of stuff going on. And like I say, it's not trickery. It's just um, meticulousness. Um, okay, so on to the lyrics. I'm not going to chastise the lyrics too much for being quite simple. I mean, it is basically some things that are opposite to things. Um, yes, it is. It's that, literally that. That is the song. Um, read it, if you will, as that point where no matter how hard you try with someone, you're not going to get along with them or what you want out of your relationship with them, because everything you do seems to be the opposite of what they want, or vice versa. You could put that spin on it, make it sound more interesting. Yeah. It could become quite profound. And no matter what I say, I say hello, you say goodbye, I say up, you say down. But actually, it also could just be something that you would write down in order to work out a melody before thinking, I'll go back and replace them later. And then thinking... Well, apparently, so this is one where we've got a bit of a story about where the lyrics come from. Go on then which is that it is actually a word association exercise. So Alistair Taylor, who's one of Brian Epstein's assistants, mm. obviously spends a lot of time in in Beatles world, mm. was with uh, Paul McCartney when he was writing it around at his house. And they did this thing where Paul was saying a word and he was saying the opposite back to him. Yeah. You know, so it was all this ping ponging backwards and forwards, up, down, black, white type stuff. Mm. And then McCartney since talked about that idea of duality. Mm. So... The question I've I've lot to ask you, Gary. Yeah. Is this the mallet's mallet of Beatles songs? <laughs> um It might well be. Exactly. I'm trying to think how he would lose you I It's see. not Maxwell's silver hammer, is it? It's McCartney's pink mallet. <laughs> um I say up, you say down. I say Mustn't pause, mustn't hesitate, otherwise you get a bash on the head yeah. like this. <laughs> a sticker, yeah, a sticker, yeah. plaster, a big, Blah. a big X plaster, yeah, <laughs> yeah. It's um, so it's it's more profound than you know, um, 
than it may at first appear, the nature of duality, you know. Um, but mm-hmm. it, yeah, it doesn't go anywhere else particularly, but it's the right passenger for the vehicle that is the music it travels with. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm going to give it 63.5 for looks, which I know is quite generous, but I just think it deserves it. Um, it's going to get 81.8 overall, therefore. Right. Finally, then, I need you. You don't realise how much I need you. Love you all the time and never leave you. Please come on back to me. I'm lonely as can be. I need you. I need you, Paul. Well, I'm here. Well, you know, just just call, text me, whatever. No, I need, I need you to talk about. I need you. Oh, oh, okay. Well, I can talk about it. I'll tell you these things. It was recorded on February the fifteenth and sixteenth, nineteen sixty-five. Turns up on the Help album, sixth of August, nineteen sixty-five. It's in the Help film, mm-hmm. and it's a George song. It is. It's our first George song of the selection today. Uh, our only George song of the selection today, mm. and it's an interesting thing. I think it's transitional George in some ways from very basic early stuff into, well, I'm writing things now, mm. and and here we go. So, yeah. Yeah, it's, it's always lovely when George pops up. Um, you know, statistically, he, he won't be around in lots of episodes, and sometimes we get a couple. Um but I think he has a really sweet melody with this one. A real melancholy masterpiece, this, I think. Yeah. Um, it's not particularly complicated, I guess. And the change to the chorus um, as such is a nice progression, but more of an extension of the verses, really. Uh, the nicest part of this is the volume pedal part, giving a point of difference and playing against the vocal phrases to be a hook of its own. That's sort of the you know the volume pedal guitar surging mm-hmm. in and out. Um, I think... It, Without it, it might might have the song might have failed to lift up a bit. It does lift it, possibly. Though I really do like the lead melody, the backing, George's vocal performance especially is lovely. Uh, yeah, I've got a note down here saying that his voice suddenly sounds a lot more mature than it has on the things he's done previously. Yeah. So if you think about like everybody's trying to be my baby, or even don't bother me, which is his only original before this. Mm. You know, that's young George. And the stupid thing is, he's still very young here, but his voice sounds like it's starting to be George the man, George the composer, George the songwriter, George yeah. the person expressing himself. It's, it's yeah, it's interesting. That's why I say I feel like it's transitional because it's leading us from those early yeah. bits of George into... Something like, yeah, George yeah. is kind of, you can sing a couple of the old rock and roll numbers with a lot of reverb on your voice to... um what he would go on to be just as just as an accomplished songwriter as as, as Lennon McCartney, if not as prolific. Um, yeah, I really do like the the lead melody, the backing, the outro especially. I love the outro. Just those last that little chord change in the outro is really clever. Um, where he sings the "I need you" um, line repeated, and the chords just shift, just to bring it out. Um, mm. The neatness of it, it's very good. Um, and you sent me a a lovely audio clip of him singing this. The, the isolated vocal and it's a very very well done vocal it is it's really a really good vocal performance very neat um 59 for music i'm giving it uh okay production then 
So moving on to the volume pedal, I mean production category. Um, well, that's the big thing, isn't it, to talk about? Yeah, it is. And it's it's a bit unclear exactly whether it is the volume pedal or whether it is just someone manipulating the volume knob. And you know what? I should have. I think I've got a, a copy of the Beatles book monthly where they're talking about this in there, and mm. I, I should have looked into it. But there's a suggestion that possibly it's both, that it's literally George using the volume pedal himself, but whilst he's playing, John's turning his volume knob on the guitar to, to hand do the swelling. Okay. So it might be there might be something because something sounds a bit phasey about it as well. Yeah, so it it might be one, it might be the other. It seems likely that the main feature here is that George didn't feel like he could get himself in sync on the pedal whilst playing. Mm. So John literally just reaches over to his guitar and does it by hand as they record. Yeah, yeah, an organic aspect to it, you know, beyond the, just the person playing. Yeah, it's um, it works really well. Defines the song really. Uh, the backing vocals are placed in the mix to work with the haunting quality of this song. Um, what do you think of those backing vocals? It's quite unusual because it's not like an ooh or an ah. It's a sort of ah sound, isn't it? It's a they kind of crescendo up. Do you mix? You miss the start. They they kind of they 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 they, they almost volume pedal their voices in this way, so you don't really get what yeah. what the, what the, if it comes out of a l or a ah. It's just you just get the yeah, like you say the the um the vowel or the the, the long drawn out sound of it. So well, yeah. that's something again that a good producer can advise people on. You'd, you'd know how to pronounce words to be used as backing vocals. You don't always say them exactly as they'd be written. No. And sometimes you do cut off the last letters or the first letters of, of words to just make them fit as backing vocals so they don't clash against something in the lead vocal, yeah. for instance. And I wonder how much in production of this is George Martin saying, well, let's try this different stuff. Because actually, when you break down what's re- who's playing what and what's on the track, it's really weird. Mm. Okay, go on then, tell me. Right, so we've got George doing his lead vocals, obviously, yeah. doing that tone swell guitar. But he's also playing the rhythm guitar part, which is a nylon strung acoustic. Okay. So that's got a totally different tonal quality to the bright, big, normal acoustic guitars you use. Okay. It's the nylon strung guitar, and you don't normally strum that like that. Okay. So that's that's interesting, and that's a sound in and of itself. You've got John drumming but by drums we mean he's literally playing a two and a four on a snare drum Mm. and doing his backing vocals you've got paul doing his bass Mm. and backing vocals but the bass in this does quite a lot of work um keeping the rhythm going Mm. and in fact sort of almost plays like drum fills in the rhythms he plays on the bass because there's no drums to do them right and then ringo's job is what you might mistake for a quietly recorded bongo or conga or something. It's actually him hitting the back of an acoustic guitar, right, and playing another cowbell. Oh, I mean, it's cowbells. So they're having they're having a bit of a mess around then. Yeah, and I wonder how much of that is them going, oh, let's try this, or him saying, well, this is the mood of the piece, or this is what this song sounds like, and George Martin saying, well, you know what you need here is play it on a nylon strung rather than a steel strung acoustic. Yeah, and let's see what we can do. Yeah, it's good. I like it. Um, there's a few fluffs on the volume pedal guitar here and there, but it's organic, isn't it? It's organic. Yeah. It's like your funny shaped bananas. Um, but yeah, but they're easily glossed over. It's nice. So I'm going to give it 60 for production because I think there is some interesting work going on on it, as you've just said. So lyrics wise, I think George done good here as far as sad songs go. Um, mm-hmm. It tells a little story of longing and let down 
fits nicely with the song. George's wistful tones lend themselves particularly well to this, I think. Um, there's not much else to say about the lyrics. Yeah, it's about about Patty Boyd. It's about being away from her, touring, and you know the worries that mm. people have in those situations, and possibly denying what he might have been getting up to in other places. Who knows? By that point, mm. I think the interesting thing with the lyrics is you. It's this is February 1965, and George is writing "I Need You." Mm. December 1965, he's writing "If I Needed Someone." which yeah. is almost the same concept, but it's suddenly this bizarre universal thing going on in If I Needed Someone. It's, I, oh, it's, you know, he's progressing, he's moving. It's always a journey with George, isn't it? I mean, apart from it his is. actual journey of c- catching up and keeping up with the, the rest of, well, with, with, with John and Paul, is also his journey uh, towards where we know he would become, which yeah, is like... Yeah, um, finding his, well, his spiritual journey that he was on his entire life yeah. from sort of this point. So yeah, it's um, it's it's great to hear that. It's an interesting shift of perspective. I'm going to give it 54 for lyrics, um, which gives it 57.7 overall. Can I give you a mini Ruttles Claxon? Oh, I, yeah. This is not a full Ruttles Claxon. Okay, so this is an honourable Ruttles Claxon mention. Okay. Yeah. So there's no direct version of this in the Ruttles output at mm. all. But what you have got is a song called Between Us which is shown yes. in the film to be a, a George-style number. So it's a sort of tribute to those early Harrison like vocals and, yeah. and Don't Bother Me and things like that. But it does feature, as its main rhythm guitar, a strummed nylon string acoustic. We were made for each other, girl. We were made for each other between us. So I think that is a nod to I Need You. It's it's very, very nearly. Yeah. I'm, I'm, you could have almost convinced me to have a full Ruttles Claxon for that one, Paul. Well, I think it would... I, I, no, it's a bit tricky, that one, I think, because I think it covers other things as well. And sometimes you have to decide yes. to to put one on one thing and not the, another that it might also cover. So yeah. Okay, well, I think well, I think a, a mention at the very least is well-deserved. Um, yes, for, for for a good song, which definitely has echoes of it, most definitely. So then, we are done for this week and for this year. Ooh. Uh, so the last one of 2020. Um, so, you know, a year to remember, because the, the big Beatles sort-out started. And, yeah, uh, yeah. You know, that's the only thing that happened in 2020, of any note. So we can get into the chart. We don't have any top teners. No. But we're very close. But So I'll go through the um, where things did end up. So I have 80 songs. At number 56, I Call Your Name. At number 54, Can't Buy Me Love. At number 42, I Need You. At number 22, Hey Bulldog. And Hello Goodbye goes in at number 12. Hmm. Hmm. So I'll do the good old top 10 countdown for the last time this year, um, as it stands, which is... At number 10, Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band. At number 9, You Never Give Me Your Money. Long, Long, Long at number 8. Lovely Rita at number 7. Nowhere Man is at number 6. At number 5, Yesterday. The Fool on the Hill at number 4. Cry Baby Cry at number 3. Lady Madonna at number 2. And at number 1, I Am the Walrus. So that's our last episode of uh, this year. Um, The last one of 2020. 
uh, and we will be back after a little break just for new year just to have some time to recoup and get ready for another year of Beatles sorting we'll be back on the 11th of January 2021 Mm -hmm. so um, yeah so in the meantime if you want to catch up with anything um, else I would highly recommend Paul's podcast The Head Ballet Paul if you'd like to tell them about it well, if you look for just Head Ballet Pod and all the various social things, you'll find it there. And there's been a few little Christmas treats over the past few weeks. Mm. And we will be starting season two sometime in the new year. Good. Also, uh, last week I told you about, as always, our Twitter account, at big underscore sort, and about our Gmail uh, address, which I accidentally called, told you was thebigbeetlesortout at gmail.com. Uh, it's actually bigbeetlesortout at gmail.com but I'm sure you would have had the failed message response and figured that one out for yourself but um, just in case thank you for joining us this year we've enjoyed your company on Twitter um, and elsewhere and uh, we hope you all have a lovely new year and we will see you in 2021 goodbye good beetle